BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Bill Press Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson, Senior Washington Editor at NBC News Digital, sitting in for Bill. Here in our nation's capital, it's about 8.30 in the morning on Friday, March the 3rd. Trump and DeSantis head to Chile, Iowa, heating up the Republican primary. Fox's private communications about Dominion take us inside the conservative media empire. Plus, Tucker gets the January 6th tapes from McCarthy. And China remains on the forefront of our foreign policy conundrum. Are they sending weapons to Russia? To make sense of it all are three top Washington reporters. First, my colleague at NBC News, political reporter Alan Smith. Emily Gooden, senior political reporter for the DailyMail.com. Good morning, Emily. Good morning. And Matt Gertz, senior fellow at Media Matters for America. Morning, Matt. Good to be here. Let's jump right in and get started on the news of the week. Let's first talk about Trump and DeSantis heading to Iowa. Um, this is what it all looks like, Emily, is a real primary starting to shape up. Um, what can we expect to see from these guys as they get out on the primary road? Yeah, you're right, Ginger. It really is becoming a primary race. And your question is a good one because we're already seeing different tactics from the two of them. For example, in Washington, this the end of this week and this weekend is the big gathering of conservatives known as CPAC. And Donald Trump will be there tomorrow night making a big speech to this crowd of faithful. And Ron DeSantis has decided to skip it. And he's been doing more quiet private events with donors. And as your NBC News reported, he's going to ask for up to a million dollars to make an appearance. He's definitely giving the aura of a front runner while Donald Trump is kind of having to come on board as someone fighting for first place, which is actually a strength for Trump. So I'm curious how the strategy is going to play out as the primary goes forward, if uh, DeSantos may regret some of these moves. Alan, let me ask you, when you see um, DeSantis really putting this huge dollar mark, as our colleague John Allen reported, on fundraising and to make an appearance, not yet announced his campaign, but it feels like he's been running for a while. I mean, is he uh, poised to be the front runner as soon as he gets in the race? You know, I, I, I don't think so, if only because every single survey I have seen uh, for the last month and a half now has shown Trump not only with a lead, but with that lead starting to build a little bit. And I think people weren't necessarily expecting that. I think especially after the midterms, um, and you know, with Trump being uh, right hand in hand with so many of these key candidates who lost, and you know, we we heard Republicans for weeks talking about how you know something had changed, and people were looking for new answers for leadership, and now it almost feels like with Trump sort of picking up his candidacy, 
uh, and moving forward more quickly, that he is solidifying himself, at least in the minds of, of a good portion of the Republican base, where, you know, the longer DeSantis waits, he's going to be coming from uh, a smaller and smaller position. Matt, I feel like you watch a lot of Fox News, and we'll get into more Fox News later. Um, but when you see in conservative circles them talking about Trump, um, does he have the same luster he had um, four years ago? Um, you know, it, it's hard to say. There's definitely a divide uh, that is uh, forming. There are uh, strong supporters uh, of the former president on the right. There are also uh, a, a good number of people, particularly in the more uh, establishment-focused uh, outlets that are ready to move on from him. Um, really, he, he's in a similar position that he was in, in uh, 2015, uh, in that um, he is positioning himself as an outsider, both uh, with the Republican Party more generally and with uh, uh, the right-wing media. You see um, rep a report out from Semaphore this week uh, that Trump's people think that he's been soft banned uh, from appearing on Fox News. Um, whether or not that's a, a top-down mandate, he has not been on that network uh, since September. Uh, meanwhile, Ron DeSantis and lots of other uh, Republicans who are trying to run are uh, there all the time. Um, you know, I think that's a comfortable position for Trump to be making the argument that he is the outsider uh, in the race, uh, and it's kind of remarkable that he, that may be the case with him being a former president. Let's talk about some of those other Republicans uh, getting in the primary. We saw Nikki Haley. Emily, does does she stand a chance? Do we think that she's going to be someone we're still talking about when they start voting in Iowa next year? I think anyone in this field has a chance right now, and Nikki Haley has a, a certain number of admirers in the Republican Party. She's a woman, which is may, also makes her position unique. So yes, I think she she could stand the test of time. We also are watching for Mike Pence. We're watching for Mike Pompeo. This is going to be a crowded traditional primary, and it's going to be fun. Fun. Alan, are you looking forward to fun? Do you think that there's anyone else out there that can break through the Trump DeSantis noise? I mean, maybe Mike Pence, just because in early polling, he's got a solid, uh, you know, six, seven, eight percent. And that can be meaningful. Uh, do, do I think he has a chance to poll higher than Trump and DeSantis? No, there's nothing showing me right now that he would have that opportunity. But, um, you know, it really looks right now as if Trump and DeSantis are the only two who have a real shot at getting uh, enough support to, to carry through a primary. But, you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, it's still extremely early on. Uh, this amount of time in politics is a lifetime and truly anything can happen. Anything. We are a long way from anyone casting a vote in the Republican primary. So I feel like um, I spent a lot of time in Iowa in the last 15 years. And I just think, you know, DeSantis has not been tried the way that an Iowa voter is going to try him. And to me, 
just be so much that can change between now and then. Um, speaking of so much changing, um, you know, Trump's legal problems have been out in the open and his legal problems have not been contained to just Trump. Um, as we see Georgia, as we see the New York attorney general this week, um, seeming to, are the prosecutor in, in New York City, seeming to talk to folks around Trump's circle. But the other big legal case in the news this past week has been uh, Dominion. Matt, can you sort of get us up to date? Um, we're getting new documents every few days. This case is sort of trickling out, but it's not quietly trickling. Can you, can you sort of get us up to speed on what is going on with Dominion and Fox News? Sure. So broadly, uh, Dominion Voting Systems, which is an, an election technology company, has sued Fox News in a $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit. Uh, the lawsuit revolves around the network's coverage following the 2020 election, uh, in which, uh, Donald, as you may recall, Donald Trump and his lawyers were uh, attacking um on a number of fronts, the uh, elections uh, legitimacy, uh, in particular, uh, they were making arguments that uh, Dominion's voting systems had been used to switch votes, which is not something that can happen. Um, like they, it, it is just not something that the company has the ability to do. Uh, and another, a number of other uh, false claims and conspiracy theories about the company. Uh, as is typical in these situations, those false claims and conspiracy theories got uh, a substantial airing on Fox News, uh, which uh, whose hosts frequently uh, agreed that they were correct or otherwise uh, promoted them. Um, and so Dominion uh, has sued uh, for damages uh, over that. Now, in recent weeks, there have been two big filings uh, from Dominion in which they're revealing some of what they found through discovery, through um, uh, get, receiving emails and text messages from inside Fox News during that period, uh, as well as uh, in depositions with the network's hosts and executives. And what's come out of that has been uh, quite damning. Uh, effectively, what they've established is that the uh, network's top uh, stars and executives knew that the claims that they were being made that were being made on the network about the company's purported role in stealing the election were false, uh, and, and that they were continuing to push them because they feared that their viewers were getting angry at the network and were abandoning it for its competitors. So they were basically lying to their audience as a way of getting them uh, back. Um, and so experts have re responded to this by saying, wow, that really does look like it may put the company in grave legal jeopardy. Obviously, the standards uh, for defamation uh, in the United States are quite high. They should be, um, given our First Amendment. Uh, but uh, these uh, documents suggest that Fox may actually have breached the uh, actual malice standard uh, required for Dominion to meet its case. Uh, separately, in those filings, we find uh, some more damaging information for Fox News, uh, which is specifically that uh, Fox Corp chairman Rupert Murdoch, uh, who, who uh, oversees the network, uh, had on several occasions uh, ordered 
Fox executives to use the the uh, network's resources to aid the Republican Party. Now, while people like me have always uh, said that that is uh, something that Fox does, it, it's something quite different to see it in the words of the network's co-founder. Let me ask you real quick, which of all of these, I mean, there was a lot of attention paid to Tucker text messages and text messages with Hannity and Murdoch. Which Was there one that like really surprised you? Was there one that as you were looking through, you went, wow, I, I can't believe someone said that out loud or in um, writing? So Tucker uh, had a text message that I thought was certainly revelatory for understanding Fox News. He uh, was in a back and forth with uh, fellow primetime host Laura Ingram, uh, and they were discussing how they thought that Trump's lawyers, Rudy Giuliani, uh, as well as Sidney Powell, were uh, crazy people who were spreading lies. Uh, and Carlson responded to that by saying that he, he found that offensive, that they were lying. But, quote, uh, our viewers are good people and they believe it, which is really kind of a touchstone for understanding how Fox News operates. It is not in the business of informing its viewers uh, in cases where uh, their beliefs may be incorrect. It is in the business of confirming uh, their worldview. Uh, the second uh, message that I, I thought was particularly uh, damning was uh, th there's one in which... Uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch is uh, emailing with uh, Suzanne Scott, who's CEO of uh, Fox News, uh, and he uh, emails, you probably know about, this is in October of 2020, you probably know about the Lou Dobbs outburst against Lindsey Graham. Could Sean, meaning Sean Hannity, say something supportive, uh, meaning of Lindsey Graham? We cannot lose the Senate, if at all possible. Uh, the we there uh, is really remarkable. I mean, he's effectively acknowledging that Fox News and the Republican Party are one and the same, and that Fox's aims should be to help the Republican Party win elections, which again, uh, a normal thing to hear from me, uh, but uh, quite remarkable to hear from Rupert Murdoch. Alan, let me ask you, uh, you've spent a lot of time covering this as it was unfolding and Rudy Giuliani and those folks argument and Republican voters. Fox has such um, penetration in the minds of Republican voters. Do you get any sense or have any expectation that any of this could change the way those voters are watching Fox? I would I would tend to say no, because uh, and I, I think a great example of this, you know, we saw uh, Howie Kurtz, the media analyst on Fox, talk about how he's not even allowed to talk about the case on air. Uh, for a lot of viewers of, of Fox and maybe Newsmax, OAN, uh, if it's not being discussed on those networks, they might not really uh, get a sense of what's really going on. And there, there are other individuals who are going to know what's going on. Uh, they're they're going to see these developments play out online. And they, they might just tend to think, you know, isn't this also happening at CNN? Isn't this also happening at MSNBC? Um, I'm not terribly surprised by these messages. Isn't this what everyone does? So and so to speak. So it's it's difficult to see this having a big impact, but these really, from a historical standpoint, um, these are are massive admissions publicly that, that are that are a part of the public record now uh, from the top executives at Fox and from the most watched primetime hosts. 
um, it's it's just it's damning to have them on the record saying saying what they're 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 saying in this deposition. Which one was the one that that made you surprised or taken back, or did none of them surprise you? Um, you know, I I I had a really good one here. I was looking at. Um, they were so concerned about the viewers leaving the audience. Um, you know, there's there's one executive quoted saying, you know, our, our viewers are also chanting Fox News sucks, something I've never heard before. Um, and there was another uh, comment just released uh, in the in the most recent documents where, um, you know, the. Uh, Rupert Murdoch was explaining that he didn't want to antagonize Trump because he had such a large following and probably most of them were viewers of Fox. So it would have been it would have been stupid to do so. Um, I, I just think it perfectly outlines what was uh, in their thinking throughout the post-election period. Uh, and it was let's make sure we don't lose ratings and let's make sure we don't capitalize our financial position. How about you, Emily? Did any of them surprise or stand out to you? Uh, yes, actually one did. And it was the revelation that some of the Fox News hosts tried to get White House reporter Jackie Henrik fired because she dared to fact check some of Donald Trump's social media postings and tweets. Um, Jackie is a respect. I'm, I cover the White House. Jackie's well respected among the press corps for asking tough questions and being fair. And the fact that um, some of her colleagues tried to get her fired for that was a, a little shocking, I would say. I was, I also was appalled by that. I mean, they were upset, not even about something she said on the air. They were upset about a tweet, um, that she posted. Um, but you have, you've segued perfectly to my next question, which is that what do Democrats do about Fox now? Um, we see to your point, there are some reporters from Fox who were well-respected for asking hard questions, working on the Hill or in the White House. Um, but there are now, I'm hearing some calls um, from Democrats that Fox should not be treated as a news outlet. Can the White House, would the White House kick them out of the, the briefing room? Would they change their credentials? It, it seems unlikely to me, but um, is there any sense that that could change? I think that would be a little bit of an unlikely step. I remember during the Obama administration, um, that administration got upset with Fox News and tried to stop calling on them. And the other networks and media kind of um, gathered around Fox and supported them to be included. So that would be a bit of a big step. And, but also keep in mind, Fox News has a large audience of Americans that don't watch anything else. So do you cut off that segment of the voting population? We've seen Pete Buttigieg has gone on Fox. Um, some other Democrats have gone on Fox in that sense because they don't want to cut themselves off from that segment of the population. Will that change as this goes on and gets worse? I mean, that's TBD. But right now, I think it's kind of a more proceed with caution. Matt, what do you get what is your sense um, of what Democrats are discussing or thinking about? And, and from your vantage point, um, do you think it's practical to have the left try to cut off um, Fox News uh, as a news outlet? Well, I mean, I think as far as the White House briefing goes, that that's really a, a question for the uh, White House uh, Correspondents Association. Aren't, aren't they the ones who do the sort of credentialing around that? I mean, it's sort of a there's often a, a sort of self-regulating system here where uh, the 
the journalists are kind of in charge of the, the credentialing themselves, is my understanding. I wish it were that simple, Matt. I actually wrote my law school thesis on um, that very question, and <laughs> it's not that straightforward. Uh, unclear who could kick someone out. But I, what about broadly? I mean, what about when we start to see campaign rallies, when we see DNC events, when we see um, those kind of things? Could they, or just more informally, stop talking to Fox? Um, is that a practical thing at all, or, or would it be self-defeating? I think, I mean, you know, there's sort of a, a a should they and like what is the political benefit question here, which are kind of separate. My my general sense is that interacting with Fox has very little benefit for Democrats. Um, that the benefits of going on the network are pretty much illusory. You can't really break through on the network itself because it, as is revealed in these filings, its its purpose is broadly as a, a Republican propaganda machine. And so if you go on the network and you make a great point, they're going to spend the next several hours finding ways to cut you down. And so you're not actually going to reach uh, those people and convince them that Democrats are somehow good on a network that employs Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. It's just not going to be effective, is my sense. Now, what you can do, and what some uh, Democratic activists have been talking about is you could go on and just dunk on the hosts uh, and turn it into some sort of viral segment that rallies the Democratic base and maybe reaches some independence. Um, but as far as reaching the audience itself, I think you have to go around Fox. You have to run ads in rural areas. You need to find other inroads uh, into uh, reaching uh, those people if you want to try, uh, because breaching the Fox ramparts uh, is virtually impossible by design. Uh, and they get benefits out of uh, the Democratic appearances. They're able to say, look, we're a legitimate news outlet uh, that Democrats go on as well. Uh, and so, you know, why should advertisers uh, not treat us the same way that they treat everybody else? Um, so it's, I think, a self-defeating strategy for Democrats as Democrats. I, I'm, I'm somewhat more sympathetic to uh, administration officials uh, who do have a responsibility to uh, provide information uh, to uh, that audience. Uh, but if you're a, a Democratic uh, politician uh, trying to break through uh, the Fox noise machine, you, you are wasting your time. Yeah, I think it's something we're going to watch Democrats grapple with uh, in the coming days and weeks. Lots more to talk about, uh, including the January 6th uh, security footage that's now in the hands of Fox News. Uh, we will get to that after a short break on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Emily Gooden, Matt Gertz, and Alan Smith. Today's podcast brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A. Good members of LIUNA, over half a million strong. They're the backbone of the labor, industry, labor unions in this country, uh, doing construction work, uh, building new schools, roads and highways, water and sewer system treatment plants. Uh, in the energy field, building solar panels and wind turbines and old-fashioned pipelines, 
and in the public sector, some 70,000 members of the labor's union, supporting working families, providing good jobs and good benefits for working families in America. We salute the members of LIUNA and their president, President Terry O'Sullivan. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We are back on the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Alan Smith from NBC News as well, Emily Gooden from TheDailyMail.com, and Matt Gertz from Media Matters for America. want to keep on Fox a little bit because we've seen um, a lot of discussion in the last week about Kevin McCarthy's decision uh, to turn over the January 6th Capital security footage to Fox News. Alan, um, this was something that we saw McCarthy promise to his right flank when he was in this never ending battle to become the speaker earlier this year. Um, is this going to make uh, that part of the party happy? Is there a real clamor uh, to see all 44,000 hours of security footage from the Capitol? There's definitely been a clamor from uh, online conservatives, you know, influential on Twitter and whatnot. I'm not sure there's a clamoring from, you know, the majority of the party's voting base to continue litigating January 6th. Now, uh, I, I did think it was interesting, uh, Eric Bowling, a former Fox host who's on Newsmax now, uh, had lamented the other day, you know, why why is uh, McCarthy only giving this to one host, one news network? Why not give it to everyone? Uh, I know other news outlets are demanding all of the footage. Um, it's difficult to see uh, how Tucker Carlson wouldn't go forth with a narrative that was um, at least comfortable for the viewing audience after the documents we saw come out in the Dominion lawsuit. Uh, so I think you've got a pretty good perspective of what uh, Tucker Carlson's perspective going into showing this footage will be uh, via his commentary there talking about uh, the, the post-election period. Now, what more can this footage show? Uh, I, I truly don't know. I, I, I think people have seen so much uh, footage from Jan January 6th, they they have made up their mind. They have pretty good uh, backing for what happened on that day. But uh, I, I still think it's going to be interesting to see what Carlson and his team of producers uh, do with that footage uh, and, and the product they try to come out with. 
Yeah, as somebody who was in the building uh, that day, I, I too share some um, skepticism about what else there is to be seen. We've seen, I believe, a total of two hours of the footage um, so far, um, and and it's a lot of the the fighting. Not to mention all the footage that has come out in cases and trials that have been uh, pursued of the of the rioters. But Matt, I'm I'm curious. Is this something that the the sort of echo chamber that is Tucker's viewers will be surprised about? I mean, did they not get some sense of what happened already? No, Tucker Carlson's audience definitely hasn't. What you have to understand about this is that Tucker Carlson has spent the last two years saying that January 6th was no big deal, uh, that the media and Democrats have been lying uh, about what really happened, uh, that the claims of violence uh, were dramatically overstated, that in fact Trump supporters were the victims uh, because Ashley Babbitt uh, was shot and killed while uh, trying to breach the Senate chamber. Um, they have claimed that the uh, th he has claimed uh, that uh, in fact, this is basically a sort of fed up uh, in which uh, federal employees uh, led the uh, riot in order to uh, target Trump supporters. Uh, I mean, it's really a, a, a very... Uh, it's an Infowars-style false flag conspiracy that has been going out to uh, one of the biggest audiences in cable news for two years. Uh, and so now... Kevin McCarthy has given uh, this footage to Tucker Carlson. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's it, this is going to be really complicated. Tucker Carlson is extremely good at lying with video. And so what he's going to do is he's going to find some out-of-context snippets that he can use to uh, prove uh, that the conspiracy theories that he he's been pushing were correct. Uh, he's going to have, thanks to Kevin McCarthy, a huge head start on that. Journalists are not going to be able to access the footage right away to respond to anything he's saying. And even if they do, they will probably find it difficult to find the exact same clips to determine what exactly he is talking about. Uh, he is going to uh, lie to his viewers for the benefit of the Republican Party, because that is what Fox News is set up to do. Uh, and that's what he he believes his job is uh, at that network. Emily, let me ask you, as a White House reporter, um, when we see the president make democracy and talking about preserving and protecting democracy such a focal point of his midterms, um, and now we see Fox happy to keep litigating January 6th, um, is it because Biden's uh, message is working? Is it something that we should expect him to keep talking about? Um, or do they think that this this has been settled and everyone that they can convince is, is convinced already? I think it is working. And I think that's what we saw in the midterms, that it rallied a lot of Democrats to the polls, that he talked about the importance of democracy. Polls showed Democrats believe in that that they support him in that argument and it's important to them, just as much as freedom and protest is important to that wing of the Republican Party. So I think it has the dual purpose of trying to counter Biden while also trying to keep that segment of the base that watches Fox News riled up. 
Well, we shall see. I think you're right. Biden is not going to stop talking about this because it's working. Um, and let's pivot a little bit, though. Sticking with you, Emily, you just got back um, from a trip um, with the First Lady. Could you tell us a little bit about where you were, what you saw, and, and what she was out there doing? Yeah, it was it was a great trip. The First Lady went to Africa to kind of shore up relations there with the United States as China's trying to gain influence on the continent. Um, and she was doing her soft sell message that really only a first lady can do. In uh, Nimbia and Kenya, she was reminding them that when they're having a drought, which is a terrible problem in the Horn of Africa right now, when they're wanting to fund education, when they need humanitarian assistance, it's the United States they call that the U.S. always comes in and supports them with their needs, that helps them. She visited schools. She stopped along the roadside to a bunch of little kids who were waving at her and gave them White House M&Ms. Uh, she met with women business leaders. She talked with teenagers for an MTV special about condoms and safe sex, which was kind of random to hear the first lady talking about, but uh, is a huge issue there. So she was just, and she traveled to a rural village in Kenya to see the firsthand effects of the drought. Um, it was the only place where you could get water for 25 miles around. And thousands turned out to see her and little kids were climbing all over the motorcade because they'd never seen cars like that. And we had ostriches running along the road beside us as we drove in. So it was quite an amazing trip. I think the point you're making about China, I mean, the U.S. is just sort of doing um, battle on the diplomatic front with China around the world. Alan, um, we saw this week continued sort of back and forth with the White House and Beijing. Um, we've seen them, sort of the U.S. officials, um, putting out there that that China could send weapons to Russia. Um, what is your sense of the state of U.S.-China relations right now? Well, certainly it's one of the few issues we're seeing uh, in, in Congress and in campaigns that is at least uh, unifying parts of the Republican and Democratic Party. Um, it's it's difficult to say just how intense things are getting. I mean, I I, I recall an NBC News exclusive before the uh, spy balloon was discovered where an Air Force general had said in an email that they expected to essentially be at war with China by 2025. This went kind of under the radar. And then a couple of days later, of course, we, we found out about the, the balloon traversing our atmosphere. But it, it definitely sounds as if things are, are really ramping up to a, to a tense place. I'm not sure very few people want to actually be in. Um, and we're only going to see from here if stuff manages to somehow get worse or stabilizes. Matt, let me ask you, because um, maybe there is someone who does want to see this ramp up. I, I, what is your sense about Republicans? Are, are they seeing this as a place they can attack Biden? Are they seeing an opportunity politically uh, to criticize him? Their views on China change so much under Trump. Are they reverting back to the old Republican views? Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's hard to say. I mean, certainly they seem to 
uh, be trying to raise uh, China up as an adversary of the United States, as its primary adversary. Uh, often you will hear uh, now in uh, discussions around uh, the Ukraine-Russia war that perhaps we should not be uh, helping Ukraine because Russia isn't the main adversary China is, and so we should be focusing uh, there instead. Um, you know, th there's... Uh, there may be bipartisan interest in making China a major uh, focal point, but uh, certainly there is still partisan interest from Republicans to attack Joe Biden on each and every point they possibly can. Uh, and so there, there certainly uh, is not a sort of rallying around the flag on this, I would say. Emily, what's your sense about the White House? Do they have a coherent approach or strategy to dealing with China at this point? Um, no, frankly, uh, they seem to be kind of taking it as it comes and kind of throwing a little bit here and throwing a little bit there. We expect China to come up today when the president meets with the German chancellor, because now there's new worries that China may give weapons to Russia for it to help with this invasion of the Ukraine. We saw them send the first lady to kind of hint at pushing back at China's influence in Africa, but she never flat out said it. Um, we do expect the president to travel to Australia at some point this year to address China's growing influence in that region. So that's another area they're going to be looking at. Um, nothing's been officially announced there, but there's been talk that he will go there. Um, you know, during the Latin America summit that the U.S. hosted, that was also meant to target China's influence growing in that region of the world. And nothing really kind of came or stuck out of that. So it does seem to be this kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what is sticking and what is sticking. We haven't seen anything yet. Well, we will watch closely, it feels like, the foreign policy moment of the year. Uh, great conversation today. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, sitting in for Bill, along with Emily Gooden, Matt Gertz, and Alan Smith. Now it's time for your favorite story of the week. Funny, sad, important, or just a great read. Alan, why don't you go first? Man, my my favorite story of the week, uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to have to go to... Uh, Sports, and this isn't actually one specific story, but uh, obviously I'm from Pittsburgh, big Penguins fan, and they made a, a trade deadline move this week. Um, fans have been calling for the ouster of their general manager, and let's just say those calls are only getting louder after the most recent trade. Um, so I'm going to be continuing to watch that, but uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see uh, a team's leader essentially being questioned in what what is among the most basic elements of of their judgment. Yeah, Emily, how about you? Uh, well, my favorite story is one you kind of already mentioned, which is I traveled with the first lady to Africa. It was just um, a rare, amazing trip, and really get time to see her close up, one on one, and uh, spreading the administration's message. And of course, she got asked a lot about the re-election campaign and pretty much confirmed that's going to happen. But she's also very good. She stays very on message. She's, she's hard to uh, knock off her message of the day. And uh, she's very good at answering questions from the press and taking them at random moments, even as we toss them out at her. But she is um, an asset to that White House that I'm curious if we'll, how they will deploy her during the upcoming campaign, especially as we see fascination growing on the Republican side with the Casey DeSantis and, you know, the Republicans love Melania Trump. So how will Jill Biden 
play her part in the 2024 campaign. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. She's surely going to play a part. So we will be watching. Uh, Matt, how about you? So regular listeners of this podcast know that I always use this time to discuss my favorite uh, media conspiracy theory, which I do not believe but think is funny, uh, which is that activists from the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and are using their influence there to try to bring about the revolution. Um, So this week, my favorite story uh, from the journal is uh, headlined, it's a party house, it's a meditation space, it's just a total indulgence, says the owner. Uh, It's about a 75-year-old businessman uh, named Tommy Dean who bought a beach house for $3.5 million, quote, on a whim after getting detoured one day and seeing a for sale sign and spent $5 million fixing it up. Uh, It is about four miles away from his primary home, which is an 8,000-square-foot Tuscan-style stone mansion. Uh, And he uses it solely uh, as a meditation and entertaining space. It is a three-level, 3,200-square-foot party house on the beach. Uh, we need higher taxes for rich people. Uh, thank you uh, to the DSA operatives uh, who produced that. Thanks, Matt. My story is one that, Matt, you actually tweeted about, so um, I feel like you enjoyed it too, about the Hotel Pennsylvania in Manhattan. <laughs> um, this is a story in the New York Times, once the largest a hotel goes poof before our eyes. Uh, it was a behemoth that you saw if you emerged uh, from Penn Station on the Madison Square side, um, and it has come down. And this is a fantastic fantastic story about the history of this building that was once the largest hotel on earth. It had 2,200 rooms, shops, restaurants, and it's even its own newspaper that circulated there. It was immortalized uh, by a Glenn Miller song, the phone number. Um, Famous people stayed there. I stayed there when I went to New York to start a new job once. Um, I just remember mostly that it took an eon to get uh, an elevator out of the building. Um, Matt, you had tweeted that your story was that you had a room there and it was so bad you left and took the Amtrak home. Um, But I think that we just arrived very late um, in the time of this hotel and we maybe would have felt different had we stayed there uh, when Fidel Castro did in 1959, for example. Uh, So I think it's a great, fun story to read about how uh, a building can have so much history and character and then be gone. So highly recommend that one. That's a wrap for this edition of the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. Our thanks to you for listening and for Alan Smith from NBC News, Emily Gooden from the DailyMail.com, and Matt Gertz from Media Matters for America for joining us. I'm Ginger Gibson from NBC News, who sat in for Bill today. Thank you for listening to the Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable.